Blog Talk Radio. Law Talk Radio with Wide Radio, and we welcome Donald Jocks tonight, and he's going to be talking about his new book, Home Setting uh, Space, and also he's got the whole, uh, he's got a, you know, the book, and then also he wants to talk about Home Setting Space. So welcome, Don. Are you on? Don, are you on? Hang on. I think so. Don? Yes, I'm here. Okay. Uh, welcome, Don. How are you doing? I'm doing well. It's good to be here. Well, I believe that you've got a new book out. Would you like to tell us a little bit about that? Homesteading Space, the handbook, 12 Steps to... A permanent lunar base settlement outlines in general terms the basic things that I th- I believe would be required to get us to the moon for permanent settlement just as if we were taking wagon trains across the plains of America. Now wow, that's really interesting. So what, are you talking about you know going to Mars, going to the moon, or what exactly are you talking about here? In any endeavor that takes us across a great distance, we've got to learn to walk before we can run. If we're going to learn to live in space, we need to learn to live someplace close. And the early, the nearest location for that is Earth's satellite, the moon. It offers many things that we already know about that can portend and give us the tools to actually make progress in homesteading space. Great. We've got a couple people who are listening in. Good. And good. Not, haven't got received any questions yet. But I welcome questions well, from anyone. One very big difference in what I propose as opposed to perhaps those 
offered by people such as Marshall Savage in his book, Eight Steps to a Galactic Civilization, is that in Marshall Savage's approach, he defines a path that would require, that, that is a grand scheme in my mind. It is something that is wonderful. It's, it, it inspires the imagination. But it has the qualities of something that would require uh, efforts and funding and cooperation on a level that, that we as a species aren't ready to achieve yet. We're still young. It also is something that would take decades to hundreds of years to, to even come close to achieving his first stage. What I propose is something that is just, it takes from where we're at. It looks, the proposal looks at where we are at in the technology that we have and how do we, with the tools in our existing society, bootstrap ourselves to make the jump from Earth to our next frontier on the surface of the moon? Wow. Um, I, I know that you are an advocate of new space. Uh, that, that's something new that I, even though I'm a science fiction enthusiast, hadn't really heard about until I talked to you. Would you tell us a little bit about new space? New space, if I remember right in my reading, was coined by the Space Frontier Foundation some time ago. And in coining this term, they wanted to refer to the commercial or private companies out there actually building spaceships. They're building space, uh, space stations and components for space stations. They're developing new engines. Companies that can be qualified as new space would include three of my favorites. The first is, of course, one of the most prominent, Virgin Galactic, uh, which is one of the member of the Virgin family of companies owned by Richard Branson. They have partnered with uh, Burt Rutan's company, Scaled Composites, to leverage the Spaceship One air, uh, spacecraft that visited low Earth or, or uh, excuse me, suborbit couple of years ago, and they are building a tourist ship to launch. Hopefully, they're, they're targeting within the next couple of years with tourist trips to suborbit. The second company is SpaceX, who has just this year launched uh, a successful bid to become one of the next suppliers for cargo and passengers to the International Space Station. And thirdly, Bigelow Aerospace, who has been and is perhaps the only company capable of delivering a space station in orbit available for commercial use within the next two to four years. These are just examples. Oh, great. Is there any smaller companies out there that might, you know, might take some interest here and, and uh, start showing us, showing us muscle? There are at least, at my last count, um, probably a good, just the ones that I can find are over 20 to 30 different small companies out there, I, I couldn't even try to name them all, who have some aspect of development in place. Uh, Rick Tumlinson is head of Orbital Outfitters who is working on spacesuits. Um, Gosh, there are fuels companies developing new or better formulated fuels for use on the engines. X-Core is developing a ship of their own to compete directly with Virgin Galactic. 
Um, and these are just a handful of companies who, compared to NASA or compared to Boeing, are upstarts. And yet they are they are indeed making progress. So you know, I did hear something about spacesuits. I mean, you know, the bulky spacesuits. I wouldn't think, uh, you know, what we're used to seeing is going to be feasible for somebody who's actually working on on the moon. You know anything about these spacesuits? Yes and no. Um, the spacesuits that we have are patterned after the tasks and the goals and so forth associated with science missions relative to NASA's goals and projects. While this works for them, they still have severe limitations. Some of the, the challenges that they're struggling with are getting the suits thin enough, particularly in the joints, so that the individuals can actually work in a vacuum environment and actually do things such as pick up very, very small items. This is still difficult and depending on certain circumstances can be actually impossible. Also, the joints, particularly in the legs and arms, can make it very difficult to move under certain circumstances as well. The kind of live capability for us to squat and jump and bend over and pick things up, these are things we take for granted. In the homesteading project, as I've defined it, the goal is to begin at these points and to move forward and to accept what we have and work with these limitations to move forward. I am concerned that the path that we've been on for the last 20 years of 100% science targets has left our public behind and in so doing has alienated the very public who we've asked to fund these projects. So the homestead looks at it from a completely different perspective of literally a wagon train to space. We want to get real people up there solving no, the problems. Really yeah, that, that's the question I have is, is if you're talking about research, um, if that's already been done, I mean, a lot, obviously a lot of questions are going to be answered when we get there. Uh, do you find that to be the case? and whether or not we should be worrying about trying to figure all these things out before we go, or should we just get there and try to figure out a lot of this because it would be more hands-on? Throughout history, we have discovered, both in science and engineering, that every time we solve one problem, there are 20 to take its place. If we wait until we have solved all or even most of the problems that face us in the challenges of living and working in space, we will never get there because the questions that we struggle to answer will continue to grow. It is only when we as a species are faced with that life and death challenge in our face, when we have the circumstances in front of us that we can actually solve many of the, the lesser problems that kick us in the butt. The aspect of developing a wheel is one thing, but making that wheel roll over a solid surface like stone as opposed to rolling through the, the liquid of, of a river are two very different problems and they pre present different solutions. It is only when we have the opportunity to experience those in the flesh that we are able to overcome those and come up with long-term solutions that don't have to be recreated 
every time there's a new mission. So you believe in recycling? No, 100%. There are things we can recycle. There are things that, that aren't practical to recycle, and there are things we shouldn't try to recycle. But those are decisions we have to make on an ongoing basis. Um, I did ask a couple questions earlier on, on Facebook, and I'm going to bring up these now just in case they, we have some new listeners. And we had talked a, a lot about the new space and private com- companies. They're building spaces, uh, you know, building the ships and space stations. Um, you already talked a little bit about SpaceX, uh, but you didn't say too much about Bigelow and their habitats that you were just, you had told us about. Bigelow is one of the most exciting companies out there. Uh, they have actually had two habitats that they launched on their own nickel into orbit somewhere around the 320-mile distance uh, above the Earth. These habitats have been up there since, if I'm remembering right, 2006 and 2007. I'm kind of spacey on the dates. I don't have my notes in front of me. But these two habitats have been up there the whole time. They're still operating. They're still working well, and Bigelow's plans are to have a three- to four-module space station for commercial research and development in orbit somewhere within the, the target that I last read was within the last the next three to four years. This is a space station that will be fully staffed with you. Now, why haven't we, uh, you know, even though I'm a science fiction enthusiast, I haven't heard about this, and this is really exciting, uh, why are we not getting this kind of information out there? Because NASA and most of the space community preach to the choir. News that comes down the pike generally goes out to science news outlets. They don't, and if they do get such a news story out to the general news outlets such as ABC, NBC, and so forth, they face the challenge that most of the public is disenchanted with the space program. Getting the story out is only half the battle. Getting the public interested enough to follow the story is the other half. Any... So you believe that the aerospace themselves may not be putting out the information? I think that they're... I I know that they're putting it out because it can be found. But the challenge is, is that most people who are interested in this have to either know the places to find the information or they have to go hunting for it. And just Googling for uh, some of these things doesn't always get you to accurate information. The Internet is a wonderful resource, but it's become hopelessly bloated. And so sometimes you have to sift through some old information in order to find or locate the the current information. The biggest difficulty is, is again, that, that people have become, the general public is more apathetic when it comes to space because of the history that NASA has for focusing strictly on science projects. There's nothing to engage the public in the sense that what does the public have to look forward to in being a part of it? The best we can do is go to a museum or go to visit a Challenger Center or maybe go for a ride at one of the amusement parks. There's nothing real, nothing tangible we can get our feet wet with. Well, you're talking about that where, you know, I think that Virgin Galactic has done a lot of really good PR out there. And, you know, they have, do have simulators and they have 
had people already go and low and you know up into into uh, certain. I'm not sure what what stage they go into space, um, um, but they certainly are. There have actually there have actually been, if I remember right, uh, either six or seven private citizens who have actually visited the International Space Station and actually spent time in orbit with the astronauts. But these are people who were themselves independent wealthy or had a sponsor who was independently wealthy. And by wealthy, I mean someone who had multi-million dollars capable to, to spend on such a trip. Well, that's interesting, though. That's uh, what I'm saying is that Virgin Galactic is already, I mean, it's out there. We hear about them more often. Um, it could happen. They do, and, and he's... Yeah, and he's got a wonderful marketing engine to that end. But again, in a business, you're going to market to where you're you're going to put your information out to where the potential buyers are going to be. And most of the buyers for the two hundred thousand dollar trip to suborbit are going to be people who have got five hundred thousand dollars sitting around somewhere, or half, or a million dollars that they can have discretionary funds to do that. The vast majority of the public doesn't, and any market that's going to go into that has a limited lifespan. While Virgin Galactic and X-Core and these companies will move forward and there will be a tourist business, it's going. It's not going to last very long before something else needs to move into place as another source of revenue for not only Virgin Galactic, but for Bigelow and X-Core and SpaceX. This can't happen until funds can come down, and costs for space will never come down beyond a certain point until the volume of business can begin to increase. That cannot happen until a scale of economies occurs between an actual settlement that produces products elsewhere than Earth can provide resources and, and trade to the International Space Station and perhaps Bigelow Space Station if he has it up in time. Well, you're really moving forward there. But the, the, the idea here is that it's the rich people who can do this now. But we need to yes. close the gap. But you're saying that really it's a law of economics. In that Absolutely. Because it costs more, obviously, there's, you know, the only there the rich can 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 uh, be a part of this program, but what you're saying is that you want to find a way to bridge a gap of others who can't afford that two hundred thousand for you know space trip. Exactly, and that's the whole point of the homesteading project. The homestead project looks back in history at two events that created a situation where the money was less the issue. And there were people who pushed it forward for greed in most cases. If we look at the establishment of Jamestown and the other early English colonies on the on the American coast, these were profiteers who put these people or provided foundations to allow these people to come and settle onto this continent for the express purpose of trading goods with England in the hopes that they could find cheaper goods here than going across to India or China. In the case of a later historical event, we had the westward migration of the American states when there was the land rush in the late 1800s, or mid-1800s, I forget. And these were people who had wagons, handcarts, or whatever. They were told, you go get your land, it's yours. All you had to do was mark it and plant it. 
Now, space isn't easily accessible by either the Mayflower or a Conestoga wagon, but with enough people involved at more reasonable, more middle ground income levels, a grassroots push could be built with enough interest that that group could finance its own push into space by using resources we have at our disposal, such as media, such as um, has been suggested before, a raffle, but the structure of that raffle has to change from what the original proposal was, and also merchandising. We are a consumer society. If we turn the power of that consumer economics just a slight different direction, we can embrace the public with space, and space can embrace the public, and we will have an outward push, the likes of which we haven't seen since the 1800s. Well, that would be really cool if we did uh, a raffle. So you're you're talking about, I mean, that's a, a billion-dollar industry, you know. Uh, it is, and, and government has got most of it tied up, but there is a, there is a very slim pocket where um, – a specialized type of event could be set up, but the catch is it can't be just one raffle. Number one, you're not going to engender enough resources in a single raffle to pay for even a single launch. Oh, for sure. You've got to cover the cost of the launch. You've got to cover the cost of the equipment you're going to take with you. Um, we have pieces that can get us there fairly quickly. Mast and Aerospace is, is developing a lander with vertical takeoff and landing capability, and they've already proved the concept and developed most of the functionality to it. We've got um, the rocket engines from ActCore. We've got the lift capability from SpaceX, among others. There are still the older rockets, the Atlas and the and the others. And so, but what's needed now is a leveling field a way that the broader reach of the public can be brought into view and into part of this to engage the public and build the support that once that support is established, the economics will begin to shift. A project that engages media can create TV shows to support this. From TV shows, you engage merchandising of products such as models, such as kits, games, then there are events people will pay to attend if there is something to engage them. Well, that's something you brought up, and, and I have it in the description, about Survivor Space. These people are on the show and be selected to be launched to the moon, and then not some distant launch, but this year. So you think it's really something that could happen to Survivor Space? We are in a glut of reality TV shows. People have, for years now, embraced extreme sports. The public is hungry for new perspectives and new things to engage them in the ideas of challenges and games and competitions. A survivor space-type television program that used perhaps that model in some way, could put people at the front for team selection, for uh, the voting like we do on American Idol. 
it would be it could potentially be something new, something exciting, but it would only work if a launch date were set and the public knew that they would that that team would go. They would watch it, they would watch the second season, they would watch the follow-on season that talks about them landing on the moon. But it's got to happen. NASA has had so many fits and starts, nobody cares anymore. Nobody believes them. That's, that's true. So are you Not saying an easy that... Boat, but it could be done. So when you're talking the, about NASA, you think that they're totally out of the loop here? No. I think that NASA is evolving. NASA will ultimately become an administration and less a research, development, and production facility. It's a government-funded organization. It cannot survive. It cannot operate like a business. It was never designed to. was never intended to. Do you think that's because of the evolve. economic situation of the world and, and specifically of, of the U.S.? Two factors. Or other factors. One, is e- one is economics. The other... It's technical. It's the aspect that it's media. NASA doesn't use the media. NASA doesn't fire the imagination of kids. When the astronauts landed on the moon's surface in in 1969, we captured the imagination of the world, not just this country. If we're going to capture the imagination of the world, we've got to have a way to present a similarly exciting goal. Only this time, it can't be astronauts. The public is bored with astronauts' routine missions to the International Space Station. It's got to be something that truly does threaten the lives of the people who are going, and that's the other factor. Columbia Endeavor, these ships are being retired because they're old, but the trips to the to International Space Station were practically routine as far as the, the American public is concerned. The few of us who are space advocates and enthusiasts understand that these are very, very dangerous missions. For the vast majority of the American public, there's been so many missions. We've seen the, the shuttle launch land so many times. It's like an airplane. So we've gotten apathetic. We've, we've become already apathetic. seen it before. Exactly. Been there, done that. And it's the same issue that we see in the arguments within the space advocacy community as well. Some say go to Mars because we've been to the moon. Some say go to the moon because we've not done there. But it's a constant argument and bickering when in reality, if the groups could somehow pull together with a common mission that says goalpost number one is get Bigelow Space Station up there and operating as a waypoint to get us to goalpost number two, which is a station on the moon, that lets us work out the problem of establishing the beachhead. Then we set up the L5, uh, the Lagrange station on the outer portion of the moon, and from there we launch to Mars. And at each one of these steps, we are walking one step at a time with the potential of being having a settlement on the surface of Mars in as little as I would say 10 to 15 years operating and potentially producing exports to its own moons. Wow, that sounds really great. So we're talking about like a leapfrog thing where you have to have one before you can have the other 
But Absolutely. You know, until, we have, until we actually make the first step, then we'll never get One of get the biggest off. things, one, one of the most interesting things that, things that I find disgruntling in a personal sense is so many people in the science and space community want to drop what I what I refer to as the tin can on the surface of the moon. And while that's a great idea for the short term, it's not expandable. It has multiple points of failure in the event of, of some small event. NASA, to its credit, has been very good at keeping our astronauts safe over the decades. But if we're going to put a settlement on the surface of any celestial body. That settlement has to be designed from the beginning to be able to grow in situ, as they, take, as they say, or from resources already there. We do not have the economic power yet to be making enough launches to provide sufficient supply forces to the moon, much less to the Mars. Not there not going to happen. Public won't support that kind of economic effort, not without being involved. But if they could emigrate with the promise of being able to own, not necessarily the land on the moon, but perhaps the homestead from which they produce a product that is important, whether it be mining water ice, whether it be mining helium-3, whether it be simply having a farm that produces air, water, and food that can then be shipped up to the ISS at far less cost than trying to get it off the surface of the Earth. Well, I'm going to uh, put a slight plug here. Uh, Don's book, as well as two others of his, and a fourth book that's coming out, this one is specifically about space and about space projects. And that is at uh, the azpublishingservices.com website. So that's AZ, like in Arizona, publishingservices.com. You can get his little book there. He also, I know, has another book coming. But before we get into that, I'd like to talk a little more about what you're talking about as far as economics and being able to... Uh, Pull it all together, and you know, obviously, when you have a new community and they have a new product, that should sustain that that region, like as if as if it was uh, Michigan with their cars. They mm -hmm. obviously rely on that industry. So, were you talking about the same kind of thing for the moon? Yes and no. What I'm actually talking about is allowing history to repeat itself in a positive way. When the early pilgrims and other settlers arrived on this continent back in the 14th, 15th, and 16th centuries, we had people coming here with barely nothing, but they had resources they could call on when they arrived. In the uh, American West, we had people moving west with the absolute minimum supplies that they needed to, to cross the plains. It is the same suggestion I'm making in this instance. We can construct with the resources we have today a wagon train trail, an organ trail as it were, to the moon first. We do this by defining the minimum necessary materials to provide food, air, and water for a defined period of time, say, as an example, six months. Six months is a good time frame because it, it closely parallels 
the time it will take to grow one set of crops. Once you've got a set of crops, you begin replenishing your food, air, and water supplies through recycling as well. Now you have the potential for extending your stay. There is a lot of talk in the space and, and science uh, arenas who advocate not sending people but sending robotic systems. And while I agree in principle, the problem that arises is we do not lack, we do not have funding available for the large projects to build the robots, much less get them designed to work in concert. And then there's the one really bugger of an issue when going to the moon, and that is the regolith dust. Moon dust is so fine, so dry, it's actually shaped like little itty bitty teeny tiny microscopic triangles, and this stuff cuts everything. Those robots won't have a chance. For the robots to be able to work long enough to construct anything sizable quantity, they're going to have to have a repair facility nearby. And people make the best choices as to what's repairable and what needs to be set aside as spare parts for the next breakdown. Well, it what do you think have both? Maybe they have both. Uh, have the That's what I believe is the best bet. Okay. That way you have the, uh, the human aspect there to decide, make the decision, then actually do the repair. So the repairs, the discernment, the decision-making, because, again, if we've got operators here on the surface of the moon, you've got a two- to three-second delay in the transmit time of the signals. You've got a lot going on. And that radio. And, yeah, and, and the practicality of trying to remotely build a settlement using robots just I, there's so many questions, so many problems to solve. Just put a handful of people up there, give them a handful of robots, and give them the raw materials and tools to get it done. And I would propose that that team can have a larger station in progress producing products in less time than it would take to develop the first set of Roberts robots to go to the moon. Hmm. So these kind of people, I mean, obviously they need to be leaders. But it no. sounds to me like they need to be no. some other brain, no. other type of person. These need to be a different kind of a person than the astronauts who have paved the path for them. These people need to be the same kind of people that they sent to Australia in, in the late 1700s, 1800s. These people need to be the kind of people that climbed on the wagons with barely enough meat to survive the winter to go west in the Americas. The people we need now are the hardy homesteaders, the people who don't have anything to hold them here, people who are willing to make the trip a one-way trip. They're going to live. They're not going to the moon to set up a few pieces of, of scientific equipment and then come home. They're going to make their fortune, to make their lives and in the second and succeeding generations, they're going to be having kids there. Well, These are the kind of people we need to send now. Uh, well, we're getting the kids already. So we're talking about the first people who go there. I mean, will there be women? And will they be in childbearing years? We have astronauts now who are female of childbearing years. Why should we exclude they're them? They're not there permanently. 
that's not a choice that I think is something we can practically make. Okay, so we well, still have obviously. Think that here, here's, have here's, here's the thing to think about. Here's, here's something to think about. Did anybody try to discriminate between men and women when they sent people west to either homestead or go to the gold rush? No. They let any able-bodied person who wanted to go, go. The understanding of that type of a situation is, is that they will find a way. But there is a price. We oh, always yes. exact a price. There will be people lost. And one of the most difficult things that is going to be challenging to the group that makes this happen is that the mindset of NASA is that everybody comes back alive. In this new scenario, in the homesteading project, we must accept that some will die in the process. It is the nature of life that we live and that we die, that we succeed, and sometimes we fail and we sometimes we pay that price. Our goal is to limit those casualties not work to eliminate them, which is one of the bugaboos that has slowed NASA down so much. I think that's because of the loss that they've had, that we have pulled in and, and tried to make it safe. I think so. As a government agency, they are bound to keep our heroes safe. But the problem then comes back to bite us in the simple principle that once you make it so safe, now it becomes routine. Nobody's interested anymore. There has to be an element of risk to it that the average person looking at the news report can appreciate, can feel. Without that, they turn to something else like racing or sky jumping or jumping off a perfectly good clip with a jump bungee cord. People like to be excited. Or a survivor. Like, <laughs> yes, or survivor. I'm not, much in, I'm not much into these reality shows like Survivor. Um, but I can see where you know there's definitely an interest in that, and obviously a, a, it's a big money money grabber, and people are interested sure. in people who are taking chances. Absolutely, or even just the backbiting that happens. We well, love to hear a great yeah. gossip story. And do, you, do you think that there'd be a whole lot of that going on on Survivor Space, though? I don't think that the program would survive very long if there wasn't some sort of backbiting. And this is why I say that the people who go on this one-way trip to Homestead the Moon have to be down-to-earth people who are doing everything that they have in their power to get there for the same reasons that the survivor people are doing everything they can to win. Winning out against the elements, winning out against the frontier is a different mindset than getting to your destination and coming home. It is a completely different mindset. I want to make it clear. I do not denigrate in any way, shape, or form the astronauts, nor do I want to downplay or have anybody think I'm downplaying what they do or the risks that they experience. Sitting on top of perhaps the equivalent of a few atom bombs on, on your butt is not my idea of a safe trip. Okay, so you're you're believing in somebody. I mean, obviously, it's going to be hard work. You know, these these people who go there and they take chances, and I would think that the first set would have the biggest risk. Absolutely. In fact, I would put their odds at surviving of fifty 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 or less. Wow. Simply because there's too many un, unanswered questions about 
accomplishing a permanent settlement on the surface of the moon or, for that matter, Mars. So how do you think we should be choosing these people? The way that they should be chosen is the same way the settlers were chosen for Jamestown, the same way they were chosen for most of the other pilgrim settlements, the same way they were chosen to go west. People choose to make that choice themselves. And, and here's something that's a little bit more relevant to our day and time. It is the same kind of a person who chooses to cross the border between the Mexico and the United States. Somebody who is looking for a better way to make a better life, not only for themselves, but for their families. And all you have to do is look at the border crossings from the United States or from Mexico to the United States to realize just how many people are likely to be willing to take the risk, to take a shot on a trip like this where they would get... When when they come to the United States, they come looking for a job. If somebody goes to the moon, this is a whole new life. They make the rules when they get there. They're not bound by citizenship laws or police or anything like this. Well, don't you think because that might the be the first a ones there? So they they would be but, creating their own rules, or would rules already be set in place? Because you know every society there has is, kind of rules. <laughs> Any society that goes, you know, whatever team is is selected, and, and we'll just shoot, uh, we'll just paraphrase here for a moment. Let's say you start out with a four man or a combination, two-man, two, or some, some combination of men and women, uh, a group of four that goes to the lunar surface. They land. They successfully get their habitat installed, and they get their environment set up, and they're, they're able to make these things. The rules that they're going to go with when they get there are simply the rules they work with to get along, to survive as a cohesive team. Anything outside that boundary is going to depend on what they find. You take any four people and you put them in a brand new situation that isn't covered by the rules, they've got to make them up as they go along. There isn't any other choice. And no group of engineers or scientists on the surface of the earth is going to be able to anticipate the kinds of situations these people are going to run into. They'll have defined responsibilities. They'll have defined expertise. But those are only tools. They still have to make their own decisions they still have to run up against new stuff and solve those problems. And that's what people do. Robots can never do that. Do you think there would be somebody there uh, like a sheriff or somebody who's appointed to be, you know, somebody who takes care of of police? (laughs) If we look at the model of a a boom town, uh, law and order doesn't arrive until it's needed. It's 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 many years and sometimes sometimes could be a decade or two before a sheriff actually shows up. Most often in boom towns just, of the early world. So the star is the first person that actually steps forward and says anything. <laughs> Say, okay, not likely. The sheriff. Not likely because prior to that you've got there there is a principle called frontier law, which actually comes into play before you get into common law. Frontier law is is what our earliest homesteaders are going to be facing. As the group grows from the initial team that arrives and sets up shop, once you get your, your third or your fourth team on site, now you're getting into situations that could, could engender disputes, 
could could create situations where accidents happen, things need to be resolved, and disputes need to be adjudicated. At that time, you're going to start to see the appearance of frontier law and frontier judges. It isn't going to be until you get, say, somewhere around at least 75 to 100 people where you're actually going to need somebody like a sheriff or somebody representing law and order to enforce rules. It's just not likely to be necessary. Those that don't like the rules are going to leave. It's that simple. Okay, so if if we're doing leapfrogs and we get to the moon and we start building and mining and creating a new civilization there, how long do you think it would be before we actually leapfrog towards Mars? Most of that's going to depend on population density. And by population density, I mean the number of people who can comfortably survive, but also on the economic side of that, the number of people that that settlement can feed and provide air and and water for beyond themselves. I'm not sure I know how to calculate that, but there is a population density that will do it. Um, Off the top of my head, I'm going to say that by the time they get, say, 20 people on the surface of the moon in multiple habitats who are each producing various food, air, and water products that they're exporting to the ISS and perhaps to Bigelow by then, we'll begin to see the the economic indicators and economic forces begin to arise to provide the foundation to go to Mars. How long do I think that might take? I'd say less than 15 years once the first landing occurs on the moon. Because they've got to build up a sizable economic footprint and resources to be able to build the ship. And I personally favor building it in one of the Lagrange points. But that's going to take resources, it's going to take industrial equipment, it's going to take industrial infrastructure that does not yet exist, nor do we have the money on this planet to build it here and lift it there. Hmm. So it's all got to be built on the moon. And that's why I say the leapfrog approach makes the most sense. It affords the opportunity for everybody's goals to be met. You put a team of four people on the surface of the moon, and if they've got the raw materials carried with them to create their first six months of survival, that six months can turn into a year's recyclable materials if they establish a biospheric type of environment where the plants feed the humans, the humans feed the plants. Now they can gradually create a situation where they're producing more than they're using. Once they reach that point, Those food, air, and water products can then be transmitted over to the ISS. If the ISS then starts sending their waste products, such as metals, components, and things over to the surface of the moon, instead of shooting them in the atmosphere and wasting them, now you have economic trade. The minute you begin economic trade in a situation between two different entities, now you have the potential for growth. With growth comes expansion. Now you have the real possibility of getting to Mars. Okay, sounds really great. I want to remind everybody that if you're listening, uh, you can call in live at 1-714-242-5145. We are taking live calls. And you also have several guests on chat. 
They're welcome to type in any question, and I will give that to you, Don, as they come in. I'm welcoming questions. Um, now I'd like to re remind everybody that the little booklet is, uh, again, on the publisher's website. It's also going to be on Kindle next week. So you can look for that right on the same website because it will also be, uh, all the links go to wherever it's being sold. And that's azpublishingservices.com. Now your little booklet. Um, I know that you're working on uh, something that is moving from this booklet up to something bigger. Want to tell us the about your next project? The follow-on book is called The Homestead Project Frontier. And it takes the outline presented in the handbook and actually identifies uh, specific components and specific steps of how each of the 12 steps works together to get us to the moon. And then we use that model to get us up to Mars or perhaps some of Mars's moons and on and outward from there. The larger book will, will be showing tables and charts, and there will be images that show different things that we've already got, some things that we could use. It will be much more visual in its presentation and provide a lot more reference links that the handbook just wasn't, wasn't big enough to do so. So what you got here is Homestead Project, 12 Steps to a Permanent Lunar Settlement. And this little booklet is actually what we're talking about in getting leapfrogs to, you know, leapfrog us to the moon and get us established there as a permanent settlement, and then from there moving towards Mars. Absolutely, so, or perhaps the asteroids, whichever fits our needs at that point better. Now, one thing I will also uh, mention is is that I actually have a handful of projects that I'm working on as research for this book, one of which is an aquaponics uh, setup and configuration that is the model for what I propose that, the astro or that our homesteaders use. There is also um, a telepresence uh, or a radio-controlled telepresence kit that I've put together of tools that we have here every day, we can get them. I spent about $110, and I have two radio control cars I can control remotely via TV. It's an interesting ex ex experience, and I'll use, I use that to make little demonstrations, let kids play it, so they can understand what we're talking about when we talk about robotic telepresence. And thirdly, oh, that, that's probably there, a question. Is, <laughs> what there exactly is a third is element that I'm doing in my research um, not very far along, but and that is, is is what can we conceivably produce and how much can the biome expand as you start feeding biomass into it. The theory goes that when you establish a biosphere, like a cell, like, like a single cell, and you feed that cell, will that cell grow beyond its boundaries? For a homestead in space to work for humans, we have to be able to divide that first cell into two. We have to be able to have that first habitat generate enough resources from its gardens, its farms, its construction wood that will grow to be able to provide resources for the second habitat. 
and then those two have to provide enough resources for the next two habitats. If we cannot do that, the bottom line is there will be no progression to space, period. Life works a certain way. So how long do you think we need to, to fund this through, uh, through things like Survivor Space? In order to, is that just goes so far as getting the first group on the moon, or is that going to be some extension to that, or how long do you think that we can fund that kind of thing? I, the word usage is the catch. This isn't this project isn't one that has a specific funding source. It's a funding community, as it were. Um, it's the, the the television show provides the educational out, outlet for the project to let the public know about the team that's being trained and selected. The merchandising process generates revenue. Advertising on the TV show generates revenue. These two sources of revenue are combined with the raffle that sells tickets that also generates revenue. There is, NASA has shown that there, there is no single source of revenue that will generate enough money to fund a trip into space does not exist. Well, you can have China. A lot of people are, this is what a lot of people are talking about. about how much mm-hmm. money they're expecting, you know, to have millions already there before something like this even gets started. What do you we have to that? remember that the dollars, if we're talking U.S. dollars, we're talking billions and trillions of dollars that have to be processed in an economic community to get us across this first threshold into space. The amount of money, it's my belief that the amount of money NASA has spent already on the entire program since the beginning, since since before Project Mercury, since Goddard himself started working on the robot projects. You take all that money together, it's still not enough to get us on the moon in and of and by itself. It has to be a community effort, just like the effort was for going across the plains, for getting to this continent from Europe. It's always been about community. Every expansion of our species has been about community. But it's important to understand, you've got to have the greedy bastards that get into it. You've got to have the, the, the lowly guys that do the grunt work. You've got to have all of these pieces in place or it just doesn't happen. History tells us that for thousands of years. And as long as the government and NASA and everybody else continues to ignore the lessons of history on how to get to the next frontier, we will continue to be landlocked and not go into space, much less under the seas. Well, I know we talked about habitat and we talked about the, the, uh, the building of the ecosystem. Can you talk a little bit more about uh, the plants and, and possible animals that we would need in order to sustain a group on the moon? Sure. Back in 1985, NASA did a study where they took one man and put him in a, uh, a, a cylinder, as it were, where he could work and do things on a daily basis and he'd exercise. That chamber was connected to a second chamber with just plants and water, and, and they fed the plants and gave them water and stuff like this remotely, and the whole unit was sealed. One of the interesting things that they found is that you could maintain that environment for quite some time 
just by keeping it balanced. But there was an interesting little footnote on one of the pages of that very report that mentions that when the test subject in the in the human side of the chamber exercised and started using up more of the oxygen than was in the chamber, the plants began to respond by using that carbon dioxide and generating more oxygen in return. The system is dynamic. Unlike an engineered life support system, which is which has very tight tolerances and is, is very dependent on the chemicals and the components that are used, have to all be working at near 100% efficiency to function and generate air and water for us. A biological system does not have those, those tolerance issues. It has different issues, such as getting it started is probably the hardest thing. But once started, and if it started small and allowed to grow in the very same way that we look at a human embryo starting with a single cell, that embryo can grow very strong, very fast, as long as basic conditions are met. I know you mentioned in the book, booklet here, because i got it in front of me, that you're talking about bamboo. Uh, bamboo frame, bamboo flooring for the walls. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, bamboo would probably be good for piping of some sort, too, just like in Gilligan's Island. It can be, and one of the one of the greatest challenges that any habitat construction team is going to have is construction materials. Now, the lunar surface is full of this lunar regolith dust, and one of the nice things about its structure being that diamond shape is it tends to compact very quickly and fairly easily, and then that compacted material can be used for a lot of purposes, just like bricks. But here's the problem. If a robot does that, that robot's going to be in that dust all the time constructing these bricks. Now you've got to have another robot that's going to transport those bricks to to the point of construction. Then you've got to have another robot that does the construction itself, laying these blocks in place. Now you've also got to have something that connects the blocks to make them airtight. Then you've got to have some way to repair these robots when they break. This is a huge infrastructure that requires industrial-level machinery. It requires something to be able to make the decisions on what's salvage, what's what so forth. A biological system solves most of those problems, not all of them. Bamboo is a wonderful construction material. It's been used in, in Asia for thousands of years to very great, efficient uh, success. One of the wonderful properties about bamboo is that it grows pretty much as a tube, and in that structure it grows very, very rapidly. There are some strains that can grow as much as six inches in a day. Now, That's why that would be beneficial, especially if you're taking small strands of it on, you know, on the ship with you, and then growing it as you get get to the moon. Exactly. Once you can establish an airtight habitat that has the ability to process the biomass and the water, you have an environment in which you can grow not only grow your food reprocess your water, um, and keep your air going. But now you have an environment that you can now grow your construction materials. Once you've got bamboo, but there, the, with everything that you deal with, there is always a price. And engineers struggle in everything that they build to reduce the price that they have to pay for the results they get. With bamboo, while we have this wonderful plant that grows in great tubes, 
of different sizes depending on when you harvest it. It grows fast, but it cures very slowly. It has to be allowed to fully cure before you use it for weight to support any kind of weight. Otherwise, it shatters or it bends. I know bamboo has gotten very effective, and obviously we're using it in a lot more uh, building materials uh, here in the That's U.S. That's true. But, but on Earth, we have the the, um, the luxury of being able to grow huge quantities of bamboo, and then we can leave whole fields of it sitting, curing for three years, and anticipate that, that will be available to the market in three years. When we're on the surface of the moon, our first groups, our first three or four groups, are not going to have the luxury of having someplace they can go and get bamboo for the short term. So they're going to have to take a small quantity of bamboo poles with them to establish the first habitat. But once that first habitat is established, their first set of bamboo poles will come off within four to six months. Those can begin curing, and there is already research underway that's making progress in being able to accelerate the curing process. The other fact is is that the lunar surface carries a gravity relationship of only one-sixth of Earth, so our weight requirements are not nearly as, as high as they are on Earth. So we, we may not have to wait a full three years for the curing process to complete. The thing about a homestead is, is it's always a give and take, whether we're homesteading... I know that you got Go some of this information. You got some of this information on your website. Would you like to tell us about that? What's your website address? www.donaldjacques.com. And on there, I have I have listed. I showcase most of my projects. In the space section, off the front page, there's a link there for space projects. That will take you over to my area where I've been recording my stuff relative to space and some of the ideas. There's some links there that take you to other places as well. But my research is, as I'm making strides in my research, I'm posting it there. I know that we're talking about um, you were filtering your own water. Um, You live in Arizona, so obviously water, water is is around here, and you actually are getting water from rain that goes through a uh, gutter and actually, or something, actually gets to your barrels, and and then what happens? I mean, this is interesting that you would be doing this at home. What I wanted to do was to gain a water supply for the aquaponics without having to pay for water from the water spigot. Now, that's such a small price to pay. I mean, what what would I actually pay for water to fill up 50 gallons at, a, at the house spigot? Probably, you know, maybe a buck or two at most. But by using the rains that we get here occasionally, I was able to collect roughly 150 gallons of water in as little as three weeks during the recent rains that we had last this, this past spring. Uh, at the tail end of our winter this year in February and March. We didn't have that much rain actually fall. It was, I I think they measured maybe an inch or or less in each of the individual storms. It was enough that 20 feet of gutter captured 150 gallons of water over the course of a couple of weeks. Now, with proper recycling and reusing and capturing of the moisture, that water will last me quite a while for my aquaponics project. 
it is these principles that I'm trying to apply. Now, one of the challenges that I'm struggling with is, is that while my system is not closed, um, I'm hoping for more rain sometime soon to make sure that I can keep my water supply replenished. Well, my husband is Yeah. Our homesteaders won't have that luxury of having rain. So the efforts that I'm making, as you talked about, filtering the water and so forth, one of the beauties of aquaponics is, is that it is a biome system. The fish swimming in their water feed the water. They do their thing in the water. That water then gets pumped up to our plants. Our plants take what the fish gave the water and they extract all those elements from that water and turn it into food for the plants. The plants then let the water flow right back to the fish. keeps the fish healthy. In one of the planters between the pump and the plants, there's a, uh, a water plant called duckweed. This plant grows very quickly from this, but it has another aspect in that that plant can be used for fish food. On the website, there is a diagram I call a biome, and in that biome, I have relationships drawn between not only humans and plants, but also between fish, chickens, bees, uh, some worms, typically uh, black soldier flies, and a handful of other things, plus something else that's come come into play over the last few years that I discovered, and that is, is a furnace that takes some of the biological material and turns it into charcoal by cooking it. That charcoal becomes almost solid carbon, and when that carbon is added to the soil that you'll be generating from the biomass, the worming, doing the compost, and things like this, you begin to build up a base or a foundation of soil that can then be used to plant other plants that don't do quite so well in aquaponics or hydroponics, such as potatoes, carrots. They look funny. There's dimples on them. Who wants to eat a dimpled carrot? So with the biomass... Long as it tastes good. What's that? Long as it tastes good. That's true. And so... Gradually, we want to build up not only just the aquaponic system, but at some point, we need to get the soil into the equation as well. I was going to bring that up. So how, how would we do that? Obviously, take some with us? No, there'll be no dirt going to the moon. Okay. But here's the beauty of it. Where does the dirt that we use to grow our plants in is actually a living organism in and of itself. It has bacteria in it, it has seeds, it has uh, insect eggs and all these things in it. But in order to get those eggs and bacteria and stuff in there, they have to come from somewhere, and that's what our biomass does. Biomass is any living thing that has died. Maybe it's plants, maybe it's dead worms, could be uh, uh, dead bees. Maybe the chicken died, we ate most of the chicken, we threw the skin and the and the bones into the into a grinder and then shoved it into the compost barrel. But these things all contribute to the biomass that then creates compost. Once the compost is, in, is engaged, we lay it out, we let it dry somewhat, now we begin planting stuff in it. The plants actually, in return for being fed from the soil, they also contribute back to the soil. Okay, so if we're, not, if we're not taking some dirt with us to start, then how long do you think it would take for us to actually, you know, home grow our own, so to speak? 
Um, well, the aquaponics I'm will let us grow plants and crops right away. There are two very specific techniques that my research projects are focusing on. One is a traditional aquaponics system where you have your plants all in a row and you run the water from one end to the other and the plants grow up and you're, you're good to go and you harvest as you have the opportunity. The other is a cylindrical 24-hour turning thing that actually adds light similar to what the sun gives us. There are three major segments of the light spectrum that plants need. One is the early morning sun, which is more of a yellowish uh, light, and the plants use it for a specific purpose. Then there is the most of the day kind of brighter, what we would think of in terms of a white light. And then there is the nighttime sundown dusky light, which has more of a blue cast to it. And these frequencies of light each have a different purpose for the plants. So what I'm working on is a design for a cylindrical garden that facilitates that change. It gives these plants a, a sunrise, a daytime, and a sunset. It can be varied to facilitate the light requirements of the various plants. It's designed for plants that might grow as tall as, as two, two feet in height, which is most of the food crops that we have other than things like wheat and grains, like corn, barley, things like that. Those would be grown in soil once we get to that point. There are pygmy varieties that could be implemented in some of these. But again, these things all require a great deal of labor-intensive practices. I would think that you would also need somebody with a green thumb that's part of your initial group. Because I know I can't grow anything. <laughs> I have great difficulty. That's why I figured I'd be a good candidate for proving these Techniques. If I can make it grow well, then anybody can. Um, I have, after my first pass of trying to get plants to grow, I lost five trays of plants in the space of one week because we went for a particularly long time and it was very, very hot. I have one plant left and they have survived and I'm nursing them with everything I've got. But I will be reconfiguring most of those trays that I lost with new plants in the coming weeks, and those hopefully we'll be able to put up online here as they begin to develop. And then that research will continue forward. Now, it really isn't a matter of heat, though, on the moon. What's the problem with uh, on the moon when it comes to, I mean, it's cold. In actuality, heat will be a serious problem. Keep in mind that the habitat that any astronaut's going to live in on the surface of the moon or in space or anywhere, their biggest problem is, is that habitat is not surrounded by air. There's no way to um, um, suck off the heat that just our own human bodies generate, much less any other creatures like chickens or bees or, or much less the equipment that we have inside. The International Space Station has a set of radiators that they use, and these things are huge where they pump their coolants through these in order to try and radiate out into space the heat that just that is generated from within the habitat areas of the space station. The moon is no different. It is a vacuum environment, and so there's no place to dissipate that heat. So they're going to run into the same issues. But with the moon, we have a plus. The plants will help to do what's called aspirate, or, or as they breathe, they're going to take advantage of some of that heat that will help them grow. But we're still going to have heating problems and have to 
get rid of some of that heat, and we'll have to fall back on the engineering results that NASA and other scientists have used for the International Space Station. There'll have to be radiators there. Someone challenged me not too long ago saying that what I'm proposing is is is, is to get rid of technology, and that's not the truth at all. The truth is, is to use each tool that we take with us judiciously, that we don't depend on any one technology so much that it can become a single point of failure and doom the mission because we're too dependent on, on that one aspect. We're already going to have interdependencies that are going to be very great. But a biome spreads those risks around a lot more than does an entirely technological solution. Therein so, lies the difference. So rather than uh, a bunch of you know, dirt that we're taking with us, like uh, we wind up taking, uh, obviously we have to take worms with us. Yes. So how do you that how do you think the worms will do on the moon? <laughs> as long as they've got something to eat and crawl through, I think they're going to be perfectly happy. Um, the, okay. the biggest issues that we're going to face is as they take the other creatures with them that they're going to need, such as chickens, to produce eggs and perhaps uh, uh, harvest a chicken once in a while for a, for a real meal. Um, there will be the so fish I guess in the, the real tank. Question, I guess the real question is, will the chicken or the egg go first? <laughs> I seriously <laughs> doubt anybody really wants to try answering that question, and most likely we'll take a little bit of both. Again, we're going to need to hedge our bets. It is likely we'll carry probably a dozen fertilized eggs and likely probably three or four live chickens with us, probably young, so that they can adapt quickly. I wouldn't recommend taking full, uh, you know, fully mature chickens up um, simply because of space and weight requirements. If we can take no. them up in a small package so that they can mature quickly on the surface of the moon, uh, in the habitat, and then begin producing, you know, a month or a couple of months after they arrive. That would be the ideal. Obviously, you have to understand a lot of different details here. You have to understand, obviously, the gestation period of of, of the chicken. Uh, chicken, the growth patterns of the fish. Them, yeah, how long it takes them to get to maturity? Uh, you would have to have a male chicken in there somewhere. You have to have a rooster in order to have eggs. I haven't gotten that far in my studies, to be quite honest. I, I have never raised chickens myself. Um, never have to just come in, but would rather not have a man around. We still have <laughs> to have the man. <laughs> the rooster has got to be taken. So we can only hope that one of those rooster or one of the small chickens, obviously, be rooster. Absolutely. And so there's obviously it, a lot of questions that still need to be answered. And uh, oh, a lot of these can't happen until we get there. That's true. And most of these questions, how are the chickens going to behave in the reduced gravity? Um, are we going to have to be chasing them with their short wings and can they actually jump farther uh, and fly? And, and are these going to be new issues? Are we going to have issues with the bees being there on the surface in the habitat with these people and will they grow and populate too fast for us to maintain, or will they grow fast enough to be able to maintain? There are many, many questions, and again, none of these questions can be answered until we're actually in the habit in the habitat on the moon. And here's here's the biggest rub. This is the biggest rub. No matter what we learn on the moon, with whatever habitat that we build there and make work, 
the reality is that that habitat is going to have to change markedly in its procedures and in the way that the animals and plants are used on the surface of the Mars. Gravity is different. The atmosphere is different. The pressures are different. And very what likely... We learned, what we learned on the moon may not work on Mars. Most of it will. The okay, principles so we that we learn in okay. constructing the habitat will most likely function equally well on Mars and perhaps on, on some of the larger asteroids. The principles of establishing our first biome, the principles of doing that are essentially the same. In the same way that a farmer goes from the, the Ukraine and can bring some crops and so forth over to um, the Arizona desert, and if he nurses them well enough, he can get them to grow and thrive here. We will we will face the same types of challenges. Well, I would think that would be a good plus for us to go to the moon first, obviously, because it's shorter distance. Uh, in order to learn these things, in order to take what we learn and what works and what doesn't work to Mars at that point. That's true, and that's one of the reasons that I advocate the long-term approach that includes Mars and perhaps the asteroid belt, but also that says, realistically, we have to take this one step at a time. We start with the moon. And in fact, I would have said we start with a space station in orbit, but the ISS is there, even if it's not fully capable for what we need. But Bigelow is building that next step of space station. He will be providing that next step and those that follow him. So we will have space stations very soon. Probably within a decade, I would estimate, we're going to have at least two. One of them probably a way station to the moon. The other would be the commercial establishment that he's designing at this time. That might be and a within good that time, to grow the chickens in order to for them to get used to you know, the next step. That's not a bad idea. Chickens, flies, um, <laughs> worms, the, the bees, the fish... They're gradually uh, getting used to this change. Mm-hmm. Well, like sure. Obviously, a lot there's a lot, of a lot to think about because I, I, you know, obviously I've read through some of your book, and some of the stuff you that you're talking about is in here, but obviously a lot of the bulk of it is going to be in your larger book. And when do you think we can uh, estimate a time that that's going to come out? I'm hoping by fall we will be able to deliver it to the publisher for distribution. That's my target, if not before. Okay. Well, yeah, all good things have to take time. And uh, anything else you want to talk about your little booklet here? Because we are on the last ten minutes, and okay. nobody has set forward with any questions. So we want to remind everybody that they can ask at any time. Probably the one thing that I would love to hear, to to be able to share is, is that any effort that we make to go beyond our current state of our species is going to require a community effort. The major issue, in my opinion, that we face is the fragmentation. Marshall Savage saw this. He knew that it would take the, the larger community and the effort of that larger community to achieve the eight steps to a galactic civilization. But what Marshall Savage didn't address in great detail was is the founding steps that we have to get through to reach the ability 
to follow his plan. What I propose is simply the first couple of steps at the bottom of the stairway that nobody seems to be looking at. The idea that if we're going to go somewhere, we need to take enough of our planet with us to actually be able to have a chance of surviving long enough to make the moon our home. And once we make the moon our home, we can step out beyond to Mars, make Mars our home. Terraforming is a wonderful dream idea, and we may indeed have the technology today to do that. But do we have the time to wait until a terraforming project is complete before either A, annihilate ourselves or starve ourselves or suffer the consequences of global warming? These are challenges. Question about the about the fact that you know what we're going through now, uh, and obviously in the U.S. and 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 elsewhere with all these you know things that are going on and the possibility of 2012 happening and 2013 and all this other stuff that everybody's talking about. Um, the time for us to start this kind of action would be now to give us all a lot of hope for the future. I think that's probably the the greatest message that we could offer to a public so worn down by unemployment, loss of uh loss of wealth that that we went through the last 4 or 5 years, um the recession, the issues that we face in government funding, loss of rights uh, as perceived in the various union uh, areas. These are all symptoms of of a larger challenge that that we as a species as a as a people face. Um, I personally do not do not believe that the earth is too small to support the people we have here, nor a, a doubling of our population. I think we could do it if we had the wherewithal and the change in perspective to make the effort to do so. The moon is a way to spread us out to a new frontier, to enliven our society, to give us, as you say, new hope to offer us the opportunity to have something new to strive for, a goal that goes beyond. I mean, we've conquered the skies. We've conquered the mountains. We've conquered the, the seas, essentially. We've, we've, we've conquered most of what there is to conquer on this planet. We have things we don't know, but we will always have things we don't know. Do you what think we that's lack part today, of our discontent? That might be part of, of our discontent. Absolutely. We, 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 need, we, become we, need new, we need something new. We need something bold that we can grab a hold of and, and see that there's something for us there. We need something to push against, something that says we are powerful. American society has this built in. We, of all the, the nations on the planet, uh, because of our upbringing as a nation, are the most arrogant, the most prideful, the most vicious, I think, in some circles about getting things done because of our arrogance, because of the can-do attitude that we have have risen up with in our society here in the American continent. Those things are simply the bubbles that have come up through our species. We simply, we just put it out there. French, Germans, they all carry the seeds of these things just like we do. Americans are just arrogant enough to put it out there and say, yeah, that's who we are. 
And that well, we, do. we do like competition. That's why we got in the space program in the first place. Exactly. We love we competition. Have, do you think we have we, enough competition right now for this? I was reading recently an article that discussed the possibility that China's efforts to go into space could precipitate a new space race and I don't believe so. I think China is going to run into the same problems that Russia, India, and the United States did in that you can fund it so long until the problems of your nation's people catch up to you. And then you have to start diverting money back into the people to provide for them, whether it's public works projects or whether it's welfare reform, whatever that may be. But a government can only support a space program, a grand scheme like this, for so long. And then its coffers begin to deteriorate to such a point they can't afford it anymore. And then the dream is lost. Do you not think so, that they could find some new space programs and new space companies there as well? That perhaps we could bond together and form a, should I say it, United Federation? <laughs> not in my lifetime. I don't see that happening. Simply because the cultural differences are great. Yes. The differences are too great still. There is that hope, but our differences are still too great. And to be realistic and understand that while diplomacy works in many cases, there are limits to that diplomacy when we look at the vagaries of national pride that we face today. And with that in mind, we can cooperate, but it's going to take decades more work before cooperation can reach the level that, for example, the United States, Japan, and, and, and France, and England share right now in the joint space programs of the International Space Station. China is proving its technical prowess at this time. It must rise to the occasion and prove its ability to cooperate with the global community before they will be invited to join. And so that's... Sorry. I didn't hear that. What you're trying to do here is you're trying to build hope. You're trying to build a, a potential future. Uh, what's your project? You're not trying to do... I mean, you're obviously trying to get people moving. Yes. You're trying to get, the, obviously, this, the science community and, and the space community to moves, not just, you know, a safe stagnant, but to actually do something. And not to so wait on somebody else to come up with the money. Right, because we we all know there, there is no bailing out of NASA at this point. So no. we need to do it ourselves. And exactly. just like we did, as you said, just like we did uh, back when we had actual homesteaders who went and did it. They had to make it happen for themselves or die trying. And what the Homestead Project aims to do is not do it for them. That is not the goal of the Homestead Project. It is not to do it for the homesteaders, but it is to provide a pipeline and a means to fund the settlers that will go on the one-way trip to settle the moon and ultimately Mars, taking and building families on the new frontier of space. Well, that sounds like a really hopeful future. And with that, we are two minutes time limit here. I'd like to mention again that the this is for sale, and also will be on uh, sale for Kindle. And all you need to do is go to the website for the publisher, which is AZ 
www.publishingservices.com. You can get your book there. Uh, and it's also available on Kindle this next week. But it'll be the button will be on the that website as well. It has a personal website and has Donald Jocks. That's J A C Q U E S dot com, where all these programs are right on there, so that way you can read more about it. And he keeps it up to date. And he also has other books for sale, so that's something to look at also on azpublishingservices.com. The bookstore on there has his other two books and another one coming out very soon. Those are works of fiction. So Donald is one of those guys who could really get around. He didn't do a lot of different things. So with that, would you like to say goodbye, Don? Good night. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah.